Well, one Sunday after the service was over, there was a little boy who came up to the pastor, and he said, when I get bigger and I have money, I'm going to give it to you. And the pastor said, well, thank you. That's really nice, but why are you saying that? And he said, well, I was just listening to my mom and dad talk, and my dad said, you're the poorest preacher we've ever had. Well, as we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 21, hope none of you are going to give me money after the service. Uh, We're going to be looking at a passage where one of the poorest people who ever lived gave her money to God. Now, as soon as I say that, I know somebody here is squirming in their seat and they're going, this is why I don't come to church. The pastor's always trying to get my money. Uh, I want you just to relax. The offering plate has already passed. It's not coming back around again. Uh, And if you think I'm talking about this today because the leader said we're in crisis, you need to tell people to give, you can look in the bulletin and you can see in the financial report, thanks to the generosity of God's people, we're ahead of budgeted giving. I'm not talking about this today because we're in a crisis. I'm talking about giving today because God talks about it. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. And last week we finished chapter 20, and as you look at Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 talk about giving, which is the passage we're in this morning. So I invite you to look with me in your Bible at Luke 21, 1 through 4. It says, And Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now, the setting of the story is in the temple. Here's a model of the recreated temple, what it looked like back in Jesus' day. And if you look back at Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 47, as we've been going through Luke, it said, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written in my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. As Jesus enters up onto this temple platform there in Luke 19, where he would have been is over here in this outer courtyard called the court of the Gentiles. Those colonnades around the outside are what make up Solomon's portico. And you remember that the, the, that section of the temple had been set aside for God-fearing Gentiles, people from all the nations who wanted to come and worship the true and living God. But the Jewish religious leaders had turned it into a place of merchandising. There was money changers and people selling uh, sacrificial things in that area, and it was, it was keeping the, the God-fearing Gentiles from worshiping. So Jesus turned over the tables and drove everybody out. Now, the reason the Jews were not concerned about that outer area is because there was this thing called the balustrade. It was a five-foot-high wall that separated where the Gentiles were from where the Jews could go. Jewish men and women could pass through that barrier of separation. Archaeologists have found inscriptions on it that say that any man who is a non-Jew that, or any woman who's a non-Jew that passes through that barrier could be killed. They have their own life in their own hands. Now, as Jesus is teaching... Uh, he's all throughout the temple. If you look at uh, Luke 19:47, it says, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. The word for temple used there in Luke 19:47, as well as all throughout chapter 20 is Huron. 
And it describes the whole temple complex, all of the courtyards that are there, as well as the inner sanctuary of the temple. As we come to Luke chapter 21 today, we know that Jesus has moved into this next courtyard called the Court of the Women. And there are two reasons. One is that we see there's a widow there, a woman. Women were not allowed to go beyond that court of the women. And we'll talk more in a moment about some offering boxes that were in this area as well. So that's why we know that's where Jesus is. Now, I told you that women could go no further than the court of women. If you went up through the next gate, you entered into something called the court of the Israelites. And this is only where Jewish men were allowed to go. And within the court of the Israelites, there was another barrier, another low railing uh, that separated the court of the priests. And the court of the priests are where uh, the, the Levitical priest and, and the, the others who were dealing with the offerings were. That You see that there was a slaughterhouse there. There was a massive brazen altar where the burnt offerings and sin and guilt and other Thanksgiving offerings were being given all through the day and the night. There was also this massive uh, thing called the sea that was there that had the water for the, the ritual rites. But as you went through the court of the priests, you then entered into something. There's a Greek word. Huron was the whole complex. There's another word, naos, that describes the inner sanctuary. And the inner sanctuary is only where a very small number of priests who were on duty could enter. And you see up there some of the things that were there, the golden lampstand, the, the altar of incense, the table of showbread. And beyond that was the veil that separated the holy of holies. And only once a year could the high priest go beyond the the veil, behind that on the day of atonement, where he would place the blood of the sacrifice on the top of the mercy seat. You remember when we were back in Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 through 14, we talked about how Jesus was the propitiation, the payment for our sins. The Greek word was halismos. And that's what the covering of the Ark of the Covenant was, the halismos. And so this is where the priest would enter into. Now, as I mentioned, as we're looking at this passage in Luke chapter 21, Jesus is out here in the court of the women. And um, we know that he's in the court of the women because there's this offering that is being made. And this is where there were uh, these 13 boxes that were used to receive offerings in the temple. And here's a, a picture of a recreation of what they would look like. And you'll notice that there is a collection container, and on the top there's this brass trumpet-shaped top. And you would come and you would put your money into it. Now, each of the boxes was labeled because the 13 different boxes had various uh, offerings that they would receive. And as you walked into the court of the women, you went through a gate called the Susa Gate. It was also nicknamed the Susan Gate because it was almost spelled the same. And right inside the Susa gate, underneath the the pillars, the colonnade in that courtyard, uh, there were two boxes. And those were for the half-shekel temple offering that had to be paid. And so men and women would enter into the court of the women, and they could go there, and they would pay this. Now, we know that as Jesus is gathered with the disciples, and they're watching these offering boxes, it's not these two uh, Susa gate boxes they're watching, because the amount of money put in, our passage says, is two small copper coins. And there was a silver half shekel. Uh, that's not it. So we know it's not there. Now, it could have been box number three, because box number three Uh, was where women would put the offering that was required in Leviticus chapter 15. In Leviticus uh, 15.29, it said that after a woman's monthly cycle, they had to make an offering of two turtle doves or two pigeons. 
And you remember that these were very inexpensive animals. These were, uh, when Jesus was being presented, they couldn't afford the price of the lamb and the law allowed that you could substitute if you were in deep poverty, uh, these two birds for it. And so the, the, two shek- the, the, the two widow's mites that we're going to talk about here in a moment that were put in were only worth uh, a very small amount. And it could have been for these birds, but we know this is not what was put in because, remember, there were other people putting in large amounts of money, including men. Now, this was the reason that women would put their money in this box is because, remember, as a lady, you could not go into the court of the Israelites. And so what would happen is the Levites and the priests would come out and they would collect the money, they would count it out, and they would know how many birds to buy to offer uh, in in the uh, altar for this sacrifice, this particular sacrifice. It not only streamlined the process instead of having to do thousands of individual offerings, it also preserved the modesty of the women as they didn't have to stand before the priest. Now, there were additional boxes. Some of the higher-numbered boxes were also there to collect the sin, the guilt, the burnt offerings uh, for these ladies as well. And so we know it's not those particular boxes. Now, there were additional boxes that went beyond these. If you went to uh, box number five, that was where the wood offering was given. Uh, Remember that there was this massive altar that had a fire burning day and night, and there had to be wood provided for it. Box number six was where the incense that was used in the temple was purchased. If you went to uh, number seven, it was what maintained the, the golden utensils, uh, the, the things that were used in the various sacrifices. You know, in our day when people give offerings to uh, churches, they're supporting the, the light bill, the, the water bill, the maintenance of a facility. These are the type of things that were taking place. So as Jesus is watching these offerings that are being given, there were a number of different boxes, a number of different offerings that could be given. As you read through the Bible, you see a number of offerings. There's something called a vow or a votive offering. You know, you remember the scriptures tell us if you ever make a vow, pay the vow. And I think most people here have probably made a vow offering at some point in your life. Have you ever been faced with a situation or a test and you say, God, if you let me pass this, I'll do this for you? Uh, Well, that's a vow offering, right? You make those in school or during finals week or those type of things. Uh, There's something called a consecration offering. And that's where you would take and set aside someone or something for special service. We see where people were set aside, like Samuel, who was dedicated. We see where priests were dedicated over. Uh, We see where children were dedicated. If you were here last week, you remember we had baby dedications in our services uh, here at the 410 campus. And when we do a baby dedication, it's, we're not offering a, a literal offering in this day, but we're doing something similar. We're saying to God, we recognize this is a gift from you. Psalm 127.3 says, children are a gift from the Lord. And we say, God, you've given a gift to us. And the parents who stood up here on the platform were saying, we are vowing to raise our children to know the Lord, to love the Lord. And all of us as a church are making a vow as we come alongside and serve Uh, in our children's ministry, our student ministry. It's ways that we support these families. So those are uh, the type of consecration offering. My wife and I have been blessed with three children, uh, but we struggled for a number of years through infertility, 13 years actually. And as we were going through the struggles of infertility, um, we, we asked God over and over for a baby. Now, we never made a bargain with God. We didn't say, if you'll do this, we'll do that. 
Uh, we did plead with him. Uh, anybody who's ever been through infertility knows it, it is hard emotionally. It is hard spiritually. It is hard financially. Infertility treatments cost an enormous amount of money. And when God blessed us with our first daughter, Sarah, when we were given the gift of our daughter, Sarah, uh, we decided to give to God a thank you offering, not a vow. We didn't say, if you'll do this, we'll do this for you. But we said, God, to recognize the gift of this child to us, we want to make a gift to a ministry that supports children. So we took the cost of what it would have taken for a year of infertility treatment, and we gave that to a pregnancy care center. We said we want to give a financial gift to a ministry that is in the business of trying to save lives, to try to give these children an opportunity at the gift of life. And so that was something that we did. Uh, As you sit here today, you can probably think of things in your own life where you've done something similar, where you've given to God a thank you gift. It could be you closed a big deal. It may be that you got a raise. It may be that you just said, God, thank you. Uh, for the gift of life. I was alive in 95. Here's a gift, you know. It's, it's ways where we say to God, thank you. It's an above and beyond type of offering. And this is the type of gift that this woman is giving here, as we'll talk more about in a moment. Now, as we're talking about giving, I want you to hear this. It's not just limited to money. Many times people say, well, Roger, I don't have a lot of money to give. And you can give to God in numerous ways, through your time, your talents, sharing your gifts and expertise. We have people here who who give of their time. I just mentioned how many of you serve in our children's and student ministries. There are others who have specialties like uh, our finance committee or our legal committee, men and women who are in the accounting business or in the legal field who say we want to donate our time, our our skills, our expertise uh, to help the ministry to be more effective. Uh, Many of you open up your homes when we do Echo Weekend and we do our in-town discipleship retreat with the children. Numerous families say we will house these kids. Others feed them. Others will drive to activities. And so your giving of the gift of your time and your talents and your treasures when you do these type of things. And as you look at your life, I want you to ask yourself, what are you doing to give to God? Not just in a monetary way, but ask God in non-monetary ways, how can I serve you? Not just here at Wayside, but out in the community, in your schools, your workplaces, the military bases where you serve. We find in the Bible where people uh, dedicated over their lives. I mentioned earlier the priest. Well, if you read Numbers 8.21, there it says, The Levites, too, purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes. And Aaron, this was the high priest, it says, presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. He presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. So what is a wave offering? I was watching a video once of one of these uh, TV shyster preachers. You know what I'm talking about? And this person was talking about a wave offering. And uh, the person said, I want you to reach into your purse or wallet, and I want you to take out all the money that you have. And, and, and set them up and organize them, small bills first, 20s next, 50s, 100s. And as you're doing that, he says, now take that money and wave it before the Lord. Wave it. Let, let everybody see how much God has blessed you. So you see this gathered audience, you know, waving all their money. And then the pastor goes, hallelujah. And he should have said, hold up. 
because that, that was a sign for the ushers to descend on the crowd, right? And he says, now take that money you've been waving before Jesus and give it as a wave offering. And you could see all these fleece sheep going, ah, 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 you know, because they had all their money out. Uh, so what I want you to do is reach in your purse or wallet. And <laughs> no, I told you the offering plate's already passed. We're not, we're not taking a wave offering. So, so what is a wave offering? Well, the Bible also calls it a heave offering. And the reason for that is you'll remember that there were sacrifices that were presented in the temple. Some of them were consumed on the altar, but others were then to be consumed by the priests and Levites. That was how they were compensated and paid. They didn't have uh, the, the land allotted to them. So it was through the offerings of the people that it would do it. So you would bring various things like meal and drink and, 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 and meat offerings where a portion of it would be taken out. And the priest would heave it before the Lord. He would take this thing and he would literally go like this with it. And as he did so, what he was doing was demonstrating, we have received this from you, God. We recognize where it's coming from. They're heaving it. And then he would wave it side to side. And what he would say is, we've received this from you, God, and it is to be used for the purpose of your glory and your mission here among us. And when he presented the actual priest as a wave offering, I doubt they picked them up and did that, but what they were doing was saying, we recognize that we have come from you, our skills and abilities are to be used to serve your people. And so that was a a wave or a heave offering uh, that was being done. And so again, as you think about your own life, ask yourself, do you recognize, God, everything I have has come from you. The breath in my body, the strength in my hands, the skills and abilities I have. Do we recognize all of everything we are and have has come from God and it is to be used for his glory, his purpose here on earth? Now, some of the things that they would do this with, I mentioned earlier, there were cereal or meal offerings. As you read the Old Testament, you see that not only were there animal sacrifices, but there would be... uh, grain or cakes of flour that were offered. Those were the cereal and meal offerings. Uh, they, they had libation or drink offerings. This was oil and it was wine. They would pour it out over the sacrifice sometimes or it would be given over to the priests and Levites to be able to cook and, and live with. Uh, before I was a pastor, I was a policeman in Dallas. I was talking to some families from the Dallas area this morning. And, and I worked as a policeman in Dallas, and one of the things that I did was I, I dealt a lot of times with some of the homeless population or the, the panhandlers. We see them all over San Antonio. And they would, they would often, after they got money, they'd go to the, the local liquor store and they'd buy a, a bottle of 40-ounce malt liquor. And they'd go behind a building, and they would give a, a, a drink offering. They'd often crack the top, and they'd spill a little out, and they'd say something like, this is for those who are no longer with us, or... They were just making this little offering. And you could always tell if it had been kind of a hard day because uh, they'd just skip over it. There would be no offering. uh, Or they might just do a quick drop before they would drink it. Now, in terms of a a drink offering or a libation offering, as you read in the Old Testament, you see where they would pour it out. They didn't just do a token where they said, here's a drop for you, God. They They would pour it out or they would give the entire container over to the ministry. 
And, and they didn't buy 40-ounce malt liquor. There was no ripple wine. This was the best of the best. You brought your, your top oil, your top first fruits, your best of your wine because God was to receive the best. And so as you think in terms of how you give to God, is it a token? Do you give him a drop or two? Or do we give generously to him? As we're looking at this passage, this widow gave generously. I want you to focus on that word generously for just a moment. Because as you're reading this, you may say, well, Roger, how did she give generously? It says she gave two small copper coins. Here's a slide of what she actually gave. These are what are popularly called the widow's mite. You can buy these if you go to Jerusalem. If you're around the Holy Land, they're all over the place. Because this was a, it's, it's like when we walk around town and we see pennies laying in the street. Uh, These were not just the pennies of the day. They were smaller than the pennies of the day. The Greek word used is lepta. And it's a word that literally means tiny. These things are smaller than a a dime in our society. And you see the, the markings on them. The front has an anchor and the backside has a wheel, a cart, because it represented the commerce of the day by, by, you know, land and sea. And these things were worth an eighth of a penny. So as this widow drops in the totality of her net worth, it's an eighth of a penny. She slides it into the offering box. So how can I say that she gave generously? When we read that there were rich people who were filling the plate, who were giving large amounts of money. Because when it comes to giving, what we need to understand with God is he doesn't play a comparison game with us. He doesn't compare us to what other people gave. I want you to think about some of the parables we've looked at. As we were back in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, we looked at the parable of the minas or the pounds. Remember, that was a measure of money. And we saw that God has entrusted things to us and we're to use them for his glory. If you've read the parable of the talents, again, another weight of money in Matthew 25, 14. In that parable, it says that God gives differing amounts to differing people. And so this would be in line with what we see here. This poor widow, literally, that was her totality of her net worth. There were other people who had enormous amounts of money, and they were giving just a portion. So there was a difference in the amount that had been entrusted to them. And as God looks at how generous we are, he doesn't measure the portion. He doesn't say, what's the total that people gives? He looks at the proportion is it is you know the portion is what we as people look at we tend to measure what is given but god looks at what is left after we've given it's not the portion it's what is the proportion of what we've given so as you define generosity it's not just measured by what is given but it's measured by what we are capable of and this is very important what we're willing to give It's what we're capable of and willing to give. That part about the willingness, the heart is foundational. Because as God looks at what is left, he wants to see if the smile has left our face. As God looks at what is left, he wants to see if the smile has left our face. Generosity is not defined just by how much you give, but also the way in which you give it. That's the focus of this passage we're looking at today. It is the heart, the attitude, the generosity of the people as they gave. There's a parallel passage of the widow's might found in Mark chapter 12. 
And in Mark chapter 12 and verse 41, there it says, And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and he began observing how. It's a very important word. He began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. The word used there in Mark 12, 41 is posts. The Greek word literally means in what way. So it says Jesus was observing in what way they put the money in the plate. It, it, he was focused on how, not how much. A few weeks ago, I, I received an email from a man here in our church. And let me just say this. I never share an illustration uh, without permission of the person. So if you're worried, well, I'm going to send Roger something someday and he's going to mention me in a sermon, I always ask permission before I share anything from the pulpit. And so this man sent me an email and I asked, could I share it this morning? And he said, yes. And I talked to his little girl, his 10-year-old daughter, and she said, make sure you mention me by name. So uh, I will mention Adeline by name uh, in, in this. So in, in this email to me, uh, he said, after the service today, my daughter said to me, okay, daddy, you wait right here. And then she walked across the sanctuary and she waited for an opportunity to speak with you. As you know, as we end services, we always have prayer leaders at the front. Uh, the pastors stand at the front, and many people come up to ask questions or to pray or uh, just to talk. And so this little girl wanted to talk to me, and she waited until the line started to d- dissipate, and she was waiting very patiently. And this dad says, I had no knowledge of what she would do or what she would say, but it warmed my heart to see her speaking with you. I thought I would include, this pi- include the picture that I took of it today. So dad's standing over to the side and he sent me this picture uh, of me talking to little Adeline. And uh, dad was curious as to what uh, we were talking about. So when I emailed him back, uh, I told him that his uh, 10-year-old daughter had been listening to my message that morning. And I was talking about how we were going to begin this sanctuary seating renovation project here at the 410 campus because we wanted to be able to have Uh, the capacity for more people to hear about Jesus. You'll remember that we're tearing out uh, all of the pews and we're replacing them with uh, stadium type of seating. Uh, And a good example of why we're doing that is this next Saturday. We have the Five Love Languages conference that we're hosting here with Dr. Gary Smalley. And we had to close registration at 925 people two weeks ago because we were at capacity. Uh, so we had to close out the conference because we don't have any more room. And there are Sundays where we have to ask you all to move in so that you can uh, make more room for people to get in to hear the message. And so I was sharing in my message why we're doing this, and this little girl was listening, that I said we need to have more seats so that more people can hear about the love of Jesus. And so as we were talking, she reaches into her little purse, and she takes out her money, and she begins to count it out. And then she hands it to me, and she said, I was going to buy a toy with this, but I wanted to give it to buy some seats so more people could hear about Jesus. And I feel like I want to cry again. (laughs) You know, to date, $161,000 has been given so far to the Sanctuary Seating Project. Very generous. And some of you have written checks with a lot of zeros on it, much more than little Adeline gave But I think we would be hard-pressed to find anybody whose gift was as heartfelt as hers was. The Bible tells us in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. 
And what it means is where your heart is, your treasure follows. What moves you, you will give to. You will be moved to support a ministry. You will be moved to do something uh, in order to um, advance the cause of the gospel. That's what Matthew 6.21 means. You see, giving is a heart response of worship. The word worship literally means to declare the worth, the worth-ship of God. You know, you read in the Bible about a tithe. Uh, Jason today, when he prayed for the offering, said our tithes and offerings. The word tithe literally means 10%. And what 10% is, is not a tax. As you read through the Bible, you see that a tithe was the biblical standard of recognizing the superiority of another. You see, where Abram gave the gift to Melchizedek because he recognized this priest king as God's representative. And it says he gave 10% of the spoils over as an acknowledgement of who God was and his superiority. When we give a tithe, it's not a tax. It's our way of saying we recognize you, God, have given us everything. And as, as a matter of worship, not only everything that has been given, we recognize that God has given it all. Remember, he gave his son Jesus to die on a cross to pay the penalty of death for our sin. And when we give to him, we're worshiping, we're acknowledging his worthiness. Friends, we don't give to be blessed. We give because we're already blessed. You've probably seen these kind of offering boxes around town. Uh, A lot of times people don't even read what they're giving to, right? Kids will see them and they'll go, Mom, Dad, give me some money, I want to... You know, and you, what you do is you drop a coin in one of these funnel type of things and it goes around and around and it's making this noise and then it gets to the middle and shh, and you'll see people reach in and grab it out and do it again, right? <laughs> and every now and then it gets away and they go, oh, you know. But so this is a type of giving funnel that, that we have in our day. Do you remember what the offering boxes looked like in Jesus' day? They were this trumpet-shaped metal brass-topped box. Now, I don't know if they would roll the coins around on them or not. But, you know, when you watch those other funnels, they attract a lot of attention, right? People hear the noise, they see people, they all run over and they watch. And you could attract a lot of attention with these type of giving boxes, right? Have you ever taken a metal coin and thrown it against like a metal pan or something or in a bucket? What does it do? Chink, right? Makes a noise. And so you can imagine these people as they're giving, standing there with their coins. And they're bouncing them off the the side of the trumpet as they go in. And so it's making this noise. And and you you could make a lot of noise if you had a whole handful of coins, right? You throw a whole handful in at once and it's making a lot of noise. Or maybe you would uh, decide that you wanted to stand there and attract a lot of attention with a big handful of coins. And and as you're pulling them out of your pile, you're making sure to hold up and let everybody see, hey, this is a silver denarius, right? Everybody be impressed with this big coin. Ching. Oh, here's another one. Look at that. Ching. And as you're standing there with your big handful of coins throwing them in, the line is forming because people are waiting to get in and, and do that. So they have to stand there and go, wow, this person's really generous. Look at them giving all that money. Have you ever read the passage in Matthew 6, 2 through 4, where Jesus talks about not sounding a trumpet? This is what it says. When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. 
Truly I say to you that they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You've probably read that passage and thought somebody's standing there going, you know, hey, look over here. But this is what's being described. Jesus says, don't stand there and make a big show. Don't roll your coins around. Don't, you know, throw them in and get a lot of noise. Be like this widow who just walked up, very discreetly dropped her offering in and moved on. As you think in terms of of giving, we saw in Luke chapter 20 where Jesus talked about the show these religious leaders like to put on. If you look back at verses 38 through 40, it says, Beware of these teachers of religious law. For they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk into the marketplaces. And how they love the seat of honor in the synagogues and at the head table of banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property. And they pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Remember, Jesus has gathered his disciples together. And he says, guys, let's, let's watch the offering." There's 13 boxes. He sets up outside the free will offering boxes. And he says, let's watch this. And they're probably pretty impressed by some of these long-robed rich people, these religious leaders or others coming along and chink, chink, you know, making lots of noise, sounding the trumpet. And as they're watching, they're not only impressed with the big givers, they're impressed with the building itself. If you look at the verses that immediately follow our passage, Luke 21, 5 through 6 tells us, and while they were talking, and while some were talking about the temple, and that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as far as these things which you are looking at, the days will come which these were, where there will not be one stone left upon another. It will be torn down. Jesus says as you're watching, as you're being impressed with these these big givers, as you're being impressed with the beautiful building around you, you know, y'all are sitting in a building right now, this sanctuary, this worship center. Uh, It's under renovation. It's going to get a lot more torn up in in some of the weeks to come. Now, our our project is scheduled to go about two and a half months. Um, Remember... What I'm about to tell you when you get a little frustrated with some of the dust and disturbance in here, right? The temple was already built, but it was still continually under construction. As Jesus is there with them, there was work going on in the temple. In fact, it would go on for another 40 years. 40 years. So when we finish right before Easter, that's going to be nothing in comparison. And what Jesus is saying is as beautiful as this building is, He says, when it's finished, it's going to be torn down. And that happened six years after the 40 years were complete. In 70 AD, Rome came in and they leveled the temple. They destroyed it, leveled it. You remember back in Luke 19, uh, verses 41 through 44, Jesus warned them that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. And now he says, this beautiful building you're so impressed with, it's going to be destroyed. He says, guys, quit looking at the externals. You know, 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us God doesn't look at the external stuff. It says uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In this passage we're looking at today, what it comes down to, brothers and sisters, is God looks at our heart. 
He's not looking at how much you gave. He's not impressed with how much you give. He's looking at your heart in terms of what you give. And so let me say this. If you are here this morning and you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, please do not give your money to Wayside Chapel. Now you may be wondering, did I just hear a pastor tell me not to give my money here? Yes, I did. If you are not a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, do not give your money to this ministry. You see, giving is a family matter. It's a form of worship, remember, where we get to thank our God, where we get to worship our God for the gift of his son. It is not something that non-believers are to do. Instead of giving, you should receive. You should receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. We don't want you to give. We want you to receive. We as Christians give to God's work so that others can hear the good news of the gospel and receive the gift of eternal life. You know, when it comes to giving, think in the difference between the IRS and God. You know, the IRS doesn't care what your heart is like, right? They don't care if you're angry. They don't care if you give grudgingly. They just care about the bottom line. You know, you can write uh, the Infernal Revenue Service on your check for IRS. Now, I would not recommend you do that unless you'd like to get audited. Uh, But if you want to be angry when you give your gift, the government really doesn't care. They just want your money. God says, the bottom line for me when you give to me is your heart. I really don't care about the amount you give because I don't need your money, God says. I care about your heart. And that's what this passage is talking about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 6 through 8, Paul tells us, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Just as you've purposed in your heart. In other words, don't get somebody emotionally pulling your heartstrings or guilting you into giving. He says, think about it, pray about it, plan it. And then he says, do not give grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful there is hilaros. Does that sound like any word you know? Maybe the English word hilarious? Because that's where we get the word from, hilaros. You know, there was a time when my kids were younger that my wife was crying one day. Something good had happened, and she was happy and crying. And the kids were real confused, and they said, Daddy, why is mommy crying? I thought this was good. And I said, well, she's crying because she's so happy. And they were like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, it may explain why some of you cry when the offering is taken, right? You're so happy as you're putting your your money in. You you guys think it's the wave offering. There goes my money, you know. (laughs) When you give to God, you're not waving goodbye to your money, by the way. You're investing it. Remember, we talked recently about the millennial kingdom and the rewards, and God will reward you for your partnership in all eternity. But when something is hilarious, it means there's this uninhibited response. Somebody or something, somebody tells a joke or something happens that is so funny to you, you react to it, right, joyfully. Some people belly laugh, others will snort. You might even blow milk out your nose if you're drinking. It's kind of this uninhibited, oh, you know, response. And that's what God is saying is when we give, there is to be this joyful, uninhibited response. Now, again, remember, if you haven't picked up on it, one of my my pet peeves are these shyster preachers who are trying to fleece God's people. 
if you've ever heard somebody tell you to give your rent money, sow your seed so you can reap a thousand, don't do that. That's not what God wants. He doesn't measure your heart by whether you're destitute at the end of the day. What he wants to know is, are you giving with joy? As I said, when he looks at what's left, has, has the smile left your face? As this widow gives, she literally gives everything she has. She wipes herself out. The last uh, little coin she has, she gives. But it's not to get from God. God's not this cosmic uh, slot machine where we put money in and hope he gives a jackpot back. She gives to God out of thanks and out of trust. To say, God, I know you're going to take care of me. Remember how widows were supported in that day? They gleaned from the fields of others that were left behind. There was an offering as well taken for the poor, as we just read there in Matthew chapter 6. And so this woman said, I'm giving to God out of, out of a trust and out of a love for him. It's something like what happened in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, Paul said, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, did you see hear that? Their abundance of joy, and in their deep poverty, it overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation of the support of the saints. What Paul says is this. They gave sacrificially, and as they did, it was with joy. Because their heart was moved, and it moved them to participate in the spreading of the good news of the gospel to others. As I said earlier, giving is a heart response of worship. It's where we recognize that all that we have has come from God, and we want to give it for his glory and his purposes here on earth. I want to close with this illustration about something that happened with my daughter, Sarah. Now, I called her at college to make sure I could share it. Uh, and so this was back when Sarah was about five years old. And uh, I would take my girls on daddy-daughter dates. And, and I would tell them, you can choose where we're going, what we're going to do. Uh, my daughter Hannah one time wanted to go to the Vera Bradley uh, factory, and I learned all about the purses and colors and everything because <laughs> it was a beautiful, fun day with my daughter Hannah. But with Sarah, uh, at the time, she wanted to go to McDonald's, and she wanted to play on the Playland, and uh, it was a great day when my kids outgrew McDonald's. But anyway, so we're sitting there at McDonald's. We've been playing, and she wanted some French fries. So I went up to the counter, and, and I bought a large order of fries, right? So we're sitting in the chair, and I, and I put this tray there in front of her, and her eyes get real big. There's this giant order of French fries. And, and I thought we could share. <laughs> so I just got the one order of fries, and, and it's there on the tray. And as I reached across the table to take a few fries, uh, my sweet little five-year-old slides her hand, uh, intercepts me, literally slides her hand in front. She looks up at me with these cold, staring eyes, and she says, these are mine. <laughs> now, a number of thoughts went through my mind at that very moment, right? The very first thought that came to my mind is, I just bought these, they're mine. I paid for these fries, right? And as I thought that, the next thing that came to my mind is I, I, I wanted to tell her, honey, daddy has more money. 
You can eat all these fries, and if we need more, I can get more. In fact, I can get more fries than you will ever be able to eat. And then the last thought that crossed my mind is, I'm bigger than you. (laughs) And I can take these fries if I want. But instead, what I did is I kind of sat back in the booth, I put my hands down, and I just smiled sweetly at my daughter, watching her hoard the fries, shoving them all in her mouth as she stared me down. Now, within a few moments, whether she was getting full or she kind of realized what was happening, uh, she withdrew her hand and she smiled at me and said, Daddy, you can have some. (laughs) And I wonder how many times we look like that with God. How many times does God give to us and we say, this is mine. This is my stuff. And God just sits across the table from us looking at us saying, no, it's actually mine. Everything is mine. The Bible says even the earth is his and all that is in it. God looks at us and he just kind of smiles and says, you know, I could give you more stuff than you could ever deal with. And then he maybe, well, he's perfect, so I don't know that he thinks this, but maybe he thinks I'm bigger than you (laughs) and I could just take it. But instead what God does is he sits back and he waits for us in love to respond and withdraw our hand and say, Daddy, Heavenly Father, you can share in what you've already blessed me with. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word that goes for our heart, not for our wallet, but for our heart, God. I confess that there are times that I think this is my stuff. I worked hard for this. And yet, God, you've given it to us, everything. And as a response of worship, as a response of gratefulness, God, we want to say thank you. We want to give to you out of worship, not out of obligation, not out of guilt, but because we love you. So, God, would you move in our hearts and minds? Would you move us as your people to respond in love? And, Father, for those who do not yet know your Son, Would they be moved, Father, to see your great love for them? Love that was demonstrated, as you say in Romans 5, 8, that you died for us while we were yet sinners. Would they come to receive that gift of new and eternal life? We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.